Hello, welcome to Heart Failure Beat, a podcast produced by the Heart Failure Society of America. Heart Failure Beat is designed specifically for clinicians who treat heart failure patients in the United States of America and around the world. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Priya Mapathy, an assistant professor of medicine and advanced heart failure and transplant cardiologist at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. And my name is Dr. Michael Beasley, assistant professor of medicine and an advanced heart failure and transplant cardiologist at the Yale School of Medicine in New Haven, Connecticut. Thank you so much for joining us today. Now let's get to our episode. Greetings, everybody, and welcome to Heart Failure Beat. This is Dr. Michael Beasley. This month on Heart Failure Rounds, I will talk about a paper that explores global trends in heart failure etiology, treatments, and outcomes. We then are going to sit down with one of my colleagues here at the Yale School of Medicine, Dr. Yusuf Ahmad, and talk about the indications for revascularization in patients with ischemic heart failure. And finally, my wonderful co-host, Dr. Priyomopathy, will talk about left bundle branch block pacing, as well as results from the Paraglide HF trial. And now let's get to the show. Well, hello everybody, and welcome to another Heart Failure Rounds. This is Dr. Michael Beasley. This month, I'm bringing you a paper that tries to depict the state of heart failure across the world. The paper was published in JAMA in May of this year, and has the title Global Variations in Heart Failure Etiology, Management, and Outcomes. The first author of this paper was Dr. Philip Joseph, and the senior corresponding author is Dr. Salim Youssef, both hailing from McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. The objective of the paper was to examine differences in heart failure etiology, treatment, and outcomes between groups of countries at different levels of economic development. The authors of this paper made use of the Global Congestive Heart Failure Registry. This registry is a multinational registry of over 23,000 patients with a diagnosis of heart failure that have been followed prospectively for long-term clinical follow-up. Recruitment of patients occurred between 2016 and 2020 in more than 250 centers in 40 countries across five continents. These countries from which the patients were enrolled from uh, were divided into a variety of economic quartiles, either high income, upper middle income, low middle income, or low income. And this was based upon their World Bank classification at the time of study initiation. Countries that were included in the high income category included Canada, the United States of America, Chile, a variety of European countries, as well as Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. Upper middle income countries included Mexico, a number of South American countries, such as Brazil and Argentina, a number of Asian countries, such as Russia, China, and others such as South America, Botswana. Low middle income countries included places such as Ukraine, India, Egypt, Nigeria, Kenya, Pakistan, and the Philippines. There were only four low-income countries that were included in this registry, and those countries included Uganda, Tanzania, Mozambique, and Nepal. The investigators sought to try to understand the variations in heart failure cause, heart failure medication use, incidence of hospitalization, and death among these four groups of patients coming from these four different types of countries. 
Some interesting items which were discovered were that in high-income countries, males appeared to be more likely to develop heart failure, accounting for 68% of heart failure diagnoses, whereas in low-income countries, males only made up 46% of those being diagnosed with heart failure. Another characteristic that might not be too surprising is that patients with heart failure in high-income countries had a higher body mass index, with a median being 28.4. This decreased as it went from high-income countries to upper-middle-income countries, lower-middle-income countries down to lower-income countries, where lower-income countries had a median body mass index of 24.2. Additional patient characteristics that seemed to vary proportionately as it went from one side of the economic spectrum to the other included alcohol use being very common in high-income countries at 41% and very rare in low-income countries at 7%, tobacco use again being more common in high-income countries at 11% and very rare in low-income countries at 4%, diabetes being much more prevalent in high-income countries at 39%, whereas only being present in 13% of heart failure patients in low-income countries. And the duration of heart failure was much longer in patients in high-income countries. 79% approximately had had heart failure for at least 12 months of duration at the time of enrollment, whereas that was less than 50% in low-income countries, possibly showing that there is a greater survival advantage of being in a higher-income country. One thing that was very similar across these various strata of groups is that approximately the same number of patients in high versus upper middle versus lower middle versus low income countries had the similar numbers of patients with HEFREF versus heart failure with mildly reduced ejection fraction versus heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. In regards to the etiology of heart failure, patients in high upper-middle and lower-middle-income countries were much more likely to have heart failure from ischemic heart disease, whereas patients in low-income countries were believed to have heart failure resulting from hypertension most commonly. There was also a higher proportion of heart failure due to valvular disease in low-income and lower-middle-income countries, and this is believed to be due to a higher proportion of rheumatic heart disease in those locations. When considering treatments for heart failure in patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, there were some interesting findings in regard to the the rates at which different forms of guideline-directed medical therapy were being prescribed. Overall, only 49% of patients were on the three classes of guideline-directed medical therapy, which were part of the guidelines at the time of this trial enrollment, which included a beta blocker, a RAS inhibitor, and a mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist, as this preceded uh, the time in which we were recommending SGLT2 inhibitor use. One might think that all three of these classes of guideline-directed medical therapy, having a patient with all three classes of drugs being prescribed, would be most commonly seen in high-income countries. At least that was my personal bias or prejudice, I guess, going into this. But that was not true. Actually, patients in upper-middle-income countries were more likely than high-income countries to have all three of those drug classes being prescribed, whereas 61.9% of patients in upper-middle-income countries run all three classes of guideline-directed medical therapy. 51.1% of patients in high-income countries run all three forms. This was predominantly due to a large difference 
in the prescription rate of mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists, which are much more commonly prescribed in upper-middle-income countries. Another trend which possibly was not surprising but is sad to see is that patients in lower-middle-income and low-income countries are at a higher risk of death compared to those in high-income countries. Those in low-income countries uh, were less likely to be hospitalized for heart failure when compared to patients in high-income countries. And I think what this is most likely showing us is that patients in these low-income countries, they don't have the option for heart failure hospitalization in a lot of settings because there's just there's not the healthcare facilities available as there are in high-income countries. Therefore, they're less likely to be hospitalized just because they don't have that option to be hospitalized. And then when they do become hospitalized, they're typically much more ill and have a much higher risk of death during that hospitalization. In their discussion, the authors state that some of this data can be used for primary prevention of heart failure, really trying to focus on heart failure treatment and management in low-income countries to reduce the prevalence of heart failure in those environments. Also looking at primary and secondary prevention of ischemic heart disease in higher income countries or upper middle income countries to reduce the risk of ischemic heart disease then leading to heart failure in in those situations. So in conclusion, this was a study of heart failure patients from 40 countries around the world that were divided into four different income groups to better understand the differences in heart failure etiologies, management, and outcomes in these different scenarios. The things that stick with me as I come away from this paper is that globally we are doing a very poor job in getting heart failure patients on guideline-directed medical therapy. It also appears that there is an opportunity for a lifestyle modification in higher-income countries to help reduce heart failure incidence as well with People being having a higher BMI, more likely to use alcohol and tobacco, and more likely being diabetic. Those are things that can be addressed to reduce heart failure incidence in higher income countries, whereas we try to reduce the incidence of hypertension and treat hypertension more aggressively in lower income countries. And finally, this paper does demonstrate the disparities that exist around the globe in regard to outcomes from bearing the burden of heart failure when doing so in economically disadvantaged environments. Well, thank you again so much for joining me for Heart Failure Rounds for this month. I really enjoy bringing papers to you that I think are interesting and worth discussing. If you have any feedback for me, I would love to hear from you. Remember that you can reach me on Twitter at MD. And if you have any suggestions for how to improve this segment or just like to give me any feedback about the show in general, I would be very excited to hear from you. Now, let's move on to this month's featured conversation. Well, this month we have a really interesting conversation and a topic that will be addressed here that is very applicable to the everyday care of our heart failure patients. We know that the majority, or at least what we believe, is that the majority of patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction have some form of underlying coronary artery disease that has played a role in their left ventricular systolic dysfunction. And to help us look into how to best treat these patients, I'd like to welcome uh, one of my colleagues here at the Yale School of Medicine, uh, Dr. Yusuf Ahmad. 
I'd like to take a moment to introduce Dr. Ahmad to the group here. Dr. Ahmad is an interventional cardiologist. He has specific expertise in treating both chronic total occlusions, as well as the most complex form of coronary lesion disease subsets. And he also is part of the Structural Heart Program in treating patients with valvular heart disease. So Dr. Ahmad completed the majority of his training in the United Kingdom. He went to medical school at the University of Nottingham and then completed his postgraduate training at the Imperial College of London. This all was before he moved to the United States for advanced procedural training. He completed a dedicated advanced fellowship in chronic total occlusion and complex high-risk PCI and mechanical circulatory support at Columbia University and then in structural heart disease at Cedars-Sinai. So he is one of the only physicians to have ever completed both such fellowships. Dr. Ahmad has published over 70 peer-reviewed manuscripts in journals such as The Lancet, JAMA Internal Medicine, Circulation, the European Heart Journal, and JAK and is regularly invited to speak at conferences across the globe in regards to topics that fit his expertise. And we are super excited to have Dr. Ahmad joining us here today to talk about, you know, the best way to manage patients that have both heart failure and coronary artery disease. So Yusuf, again, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. We're really excited to have you and uh, look forward to the conversation that we're going to have. Thank you for having me. So to get things started, as I alluded to at the very beginning, is that we have such a huge number of patients that have heart failure and also have coronary artery disease. You know, I can recall in the not too distant past, there was such a big emergency out there almost that we weren't doing enough to try to find all the ischemic heart disease that was in existence for patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. And there was data that was published that was showing that of patients that did have HEFREF, a lack of a great number of those people were actually being evaluated for coronary disease. That would then lead into the question as well, if you're going to evaluate for something, you know, what are you going to do about it if you find it? And till recently, it seemed like that was a question that was maybe we didn't have great guidance for. There wasn't a whole lot of data that had been published in this space and there wasn't a whole lot of evidence that was there to kind of help guide our decision-making in regards to taking care of these patients. And I know things are changing, which is why I'm really excited to get a chance to talk to you today and, and bring this information to our listenership and to see what maybe currently here as of 2023 is the best thing to do to take care of patients with coronary disease and heart failure. So I guess to start off, would you mind just kind of summarizing the landscape of of where we've come from over the years and treating people with ischemic heart disease and that have heart failure with reduced ejection fraction? What have we known? What have been best practices? And what's kind of led up to what, what we're doing here in present day practice? Yeah, I mean, I think it's honestly, you're exactly right in saying that we've had limited data previously. We've gained a little bit more data recently, but I don't think the overall situation is sort of resolved or clarified. It's a very, very complex scenario. The first reason it's complex is that coronary disease is very, very common. And it can be hard for any of us to unpick the relationship between the coronary disease and the systolic dysfunction. It's clearly possible to have ischemia as the primary cause of LV dysfunction, but it's also possible to have dual pathologies, non-ischemic cardiomyopathies with superimposed coronary disease, etc. So I think the first thing to say is that the diagnostic aspect can be complicated. It's not as simple as doing an ischemic test or an angiogram and then determining causality from that. There's no one test that tells us unequivocally that this is, 
the cause of the systolic dysfunction is ischemia versus not. And we have to use clinical judgment to try and, you know, piece things together and treat patients as best we can. So I think that's the first thing that makes it complicated. The second thing that makes it complicated is, as you said, you know, for a while, there was almost a call to arms saying that we're doing systematically too little ischemic testing. And I think that even if you accept that not many patients are tested, when you look at most randomized trials of heart failure therapies and drugs, the majority of patients have a label of ischemia as their underlying cause. So most trials and registries quoted as sort of 60 to 65%. So that's a huge chunk of the patient population. The rationale for a long time behind doing ischemic evaluation or assessing for coronary disease is really threefold. Number one is trying to establish a diagnosis. That's always, you know, something that's pleasing to do in medicine. Number two is the medical therapy itself can be tailored. Something as simple as aspirins and statins for patients who have coexistent coronary disease is likely to have an impact on their prognosis. And the third, and probably the thing we want to discuss mostly today, is to assess their candidacy for coronary revascularization. And all of this hinged on the STITCH trial. So we had a a therapy, which was bypass surgery, which a 10-year follow-up reduced or caused mortality. But we were seeing it not implemented very often, depending on the registry that you looked at. You know, it could be as few as, you know, 3 to 5% of patients getting revascularized with bypass surgery. So I think, you know, that was what underpinned this kind of sort of call to arms to try and evaluate more thoroughly for ischemic coronary disease. Despite the fact that Stitch, and we can discuss it in more detail, but despite the fact that that showed a significant reduction in all-cause mortality at 10 years, patients often either themselves not opting to have surgery or not getting referred. And, you know, clinical practice is very, very different to randomized trials. And we all know that the patients we care for for, with LV dysfunction often have older have multiple comorbidities, and may not be great candidates for surgery. And so for whatever reason, patients weren't often getting bypass surgery. And I think in that scenario, the natural rhythm of treating these patients for many, many years was a referral for bypass surgery. And if deemed not suitable or the patient didn't find it an acceptable proposition, they then got referred for percutaneous coronary intervention. We didn't have any randomized data to base that on. And in fact, now we do have randomized data that suggests that maybe that's not the right approach. And, you know, that's obviously the revived trial, which compared PCI to medical therapy. The one, you know, caveat to all of that is there isn't a randomized comparison of bypass surgery to PCI. That doesn't exist at the moment. And so we're kind of left in this situation where we have one therapy which has RCT evidence to suggest it's beneficial but very, very few patients have been candidates for it or willing to go through it. And we have another therapy that is less invasive. The morbidity is is lower, but, you know, when it's applied to stable LV dysfunction patients, it doesn't seem to reduce death and heart failure hospitalization. So although we've got more data recently, I don't think our overall situation is unfortunately that much more clarified. It's still a very, very complex scenario. Yusuf, I think that's a great perspective of kind of where we have been, the data that we grew up with, because many of us, I think, grew up in an era where stitch and stitches has become sort of the dogma and the armamentaria of all of us for when, you know, A, you get a patient and you define ischemic versus non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. And if ischemic, we all secretly cheer if they're younger and can undergo surgery and say, especially if you're diabetic and you have left vein disease, how wonderful, (laughs) you know, ironically. 
Can you maybe comment a little bit about the newer trials? Because you're absolutely right. What if your patient is more frail and a higher surgical risk? And many of us extrapolated that really it must be better to offer somebody complete revascularization if they have significant burden of ischemic disease. So I was wondering if you wouldn't mind commenting on some of the more recent trials, such as the PAR trial and the HART trial and REVIVED, and maybe your commentary on why those trials didn't show a benefit and sort of what was their mechanism for saying, well, this was your burden of coronary disease, and did they have strategies perhaps looking at hibernating myocardium or viability studies, and are those things limited in some way to predict a favorable outcome for our patients? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great question, and you know, as I say, it's a very, very complex scenario. You know, revived is the best data that we have, and it's the only true randomized trial of PCI to medical therapy. What that means is that it wasn't randomization on the basis of invasive versus non-invasive management. So it's not a strategy trial. It's truly a trial of PCI versus medical therapy. It was obviously, you know, conducted in the UK, and it was conducted after STITCH, had been completed and had been known about for many, many years. And the reason that's important is that all of these patients, you know, with LV dysfunction and coronary disease went into a multidisciplinary team meeting or a heart team meeting, you know, as it would be called in the US. And I think that of those patients that were good surgical candidates, those patients were offered bypass surgery because that was standard of care. It's not to say that this is strictly by inclusion and exclusion criteria, a trial of surgical turndowns, but functionally, that's what it was, because these patients all went to heart teams, and if they were deemed acceptable surgical candidates, they had bypass surgery. And then the other patients were randomized to PCI or medical therapy. That is, in some ways, manifest in, if you look at the ages of the patients, and stitch the average age is around 60, and in revived, it's around 70. 10 years is a lot, and I think 10 years is really a lot for a patient with LV dysfunction. You know, when we have heart failure patients, 10 years of living with systolic dysfunction, I really do think it makes a difference in terms of the overall patient profile when they get to that stage. Now, Revived was designed you know, very, very rigorously, but it was designed, honestly, to try and stack the cards in favor of revascularization of PCI by which I mean the viability in contrast to STITCH was mandated. So patients had to have demonstration of myocardial viability before they were revascularized. Because the feeling was, if you took all comers, including patients with non-viable myocardium, they all got revascularized, you might dilute the benefit of the revascularization of PCI. Now, we can debate that because we also don't have any other data to suggest that you know, viability is a predictor of your outcomes. And in STITCH, it was non-randomized, but the analysis from STITCH suggested that the presence or absence of viability didn't predict your benefit with revascularization. But I think it makes good clinical sense that revascularizing scarred areas of myocardium isn't going to help. So the trial was set up to hopefully show benefit for revascularization. It was designed to see if there was a benefit, it would be manifest. So you wouldn't have this risk of, you know, diluting the impact of non-viable myocardium. But despite that, there was really no difference between the two arms. When STITCH was first published, the five-year data for STITCH and all-cause mortality was not statistically significant. But if you looked at the Kaplan-Meier curves, they were clearly separating in favor of bypass surgery. And in fact, the first two years of STITCH, more patients who had bypass surgery 
uh, died and had medical therapy because of the early hazard. But you could see, you know, the curves diverging. And when you increase the follow-up to 10 years in stitch, you had more events, narrowing of the confidence intervals, and that effect became significant. There's really not a suggestion of that from Revive. The event rates are very, very similar. It doesn't look like if you followed the patients out further that a benefit with revascularization with PCI would emerge. Now, it might. We don't know until we follow the patients longer, but there's nothing to suggest that at the moment. Other caveats to Revive other than those we've discussed is it's a much smaller trial than Stitch, so you could argue that it's underpowered. But again, looking at the results now, it doesn't look like this is merely a power problem and that you know more events is just going to narrow the confidence intervals and it'll be significant. The other thing to note is that the patients may be different to the patients that we see when we're on service in the hospital and we're seeing ACS or acute decompensations or patients who've been treated medically and aren't doing well and are then referred for revascularization. Revived really was a trial of you know stable, well-treated, optimized outpatients. They had almost no angina and you could argue that may be an indicator that they didn't have much ischemia, even though they had viability. And most of them were in NOIHA class one or two. But I think, you know, it's a very, very well-conducted trial. And I think it's the best data that we have at the moment. And I think that we should follow it as best we can, which is if you have a patient who has been deemed not a good candidate for bypass surgery, and they're stable on medical therapy, that there is not any prognostic benefit to PCI. There may be an early symptomatic benefit, but I think in terms of reducing mortality, there's no data to suggest that we're doing that with PCI. So very interesting. Revived has been able to at least begin to shed some light on this question, but it seems like there's so much more that we really need to try to understand better to deliver high-level care to our entire patient population. Even with this data, myself, predominantly as a clinician, you know, I still really struggle knowing what to do with certain people in regards to after a stress test, do I do a coronary angiogram? And again, then once you, you get to that point in time, what do you do with those results? I, I still feel as a, as a heart failure cardiologist, quite uncertain oftentimes about what to do with my patients. So that being said, what do you see coming down the line here in the next couple of years? Other information that might be coming out to help us help somebody like me feel a little bit more comfortable about making the right decisions for taking care of my patients? And what other questions do you feel like really need to be addressed to help direct practice in this way? Yeah, I think, you know, you're definitely not alone in in feeling that. And we feel it too, honestly, as interventional cardiologists, because it's natural in medicine that our practices and rhythms and thought processes become entrenched over many, many years. And it takes a long time for things to change. And so we look at the results of these trials and we digest them, but over the weeks and months after they come out, the referral stream to the cath lab is the same. And often the expectations are the same. So people are sent with LV dysfunction who aren't felt suitable for bypass surgery, and there's an expectation for you to revascularize. I would say, you know, to the first part of your question about how to manage patients now, you know, I still advocate for doing a coronary angiogram or an ischemic evaluation. I think there is important prognostic information we can get. And if they have very extensive multivessel disease, if they have left main disease, although we don't have data to suggest that PCI helps those patients, A, you could consider them for bypass surgery, and B, if there is a patient that's going to benefit those with very high burdens of disease and proximal disease are the ones that we really want to focus and target. That's not 
an RCT supported recommendation, unfortunately, you know, when you have relatively modestly sized trials, you can't dig in and say, does a proximal LED lesion benefit? Does a left main lesion benefit? And when, you know, the headline trial or the primary outcome is null, all of your subgroup analyses are hypothesis generated. But my bias would be that if there is a patient that's going to benefit, it will be the patients with left main disease and proximal LED disease. My bias is still to endorse doing an ischemic evaluation and doing an angiogram. The patients that we do the angiogram on that have, you know, disease in the mid portion of the right coronary artery, and they may also have, let's say, a severe stenosis and an obtuse marginal, that's technically two vessel disease. They can be critical lesions, but if the patient has an ejection fraction of 20% and there's global hyperkinesia, I think that it's a stretch to think we're going to modify the disease course by revascularizing. So those types of patients, we would reserve revascularization only for angina. And it's, I think, important that we don't lose in all of this that angina reduction is still an appropriate goal of therapy. A lot of these patients have coexistent angina. A lot of the time, they come into hospital with acute coronary syndromes that precipitate decompensations in the top of their heart failure. And I think those are appropriate to treat with revascularization. I think in terms of what's coming in the future, there is a global collaborative effort to undertake a randomized comparison of cabbage and PCI. So as Priya said, you know, Revive came out, and then everybody rushed to sort of try and figure out how is this different to Stitch, and you end up comparing things that are not appropriate to compare because there isn't a head-to-head comparison of PCI and cabbage. And so there is a trial that's ongoing called Different Things in Different Countries, but broadly Stitch 3, It's intended to be an international collaboration where each country will conduct its own trial, but the overall results could also be pulled. I think that Sweden, the UK, Canada, and maybe another European country have got funding. So these trials are going to move forward. What's important to note is that these are trials comparing the revascularization modality. So what that means is the heart team has decided that revascularization is the right thing for that patient. So this isn't an overall strategy trial of working out is revascularization better than medical therapy. That's not the goal of these these trials. The goal of these is that revascularization has clinically been deemed to be the right thing for the patients, and then they get randomized to cabbage or PCI. I think that's going to be a very, very worthwhile trial. I think it's going to lead to results which are going to influence clinical practice. And it will finally give us the first direct comparison of cabbage and PCI in patients with LV dysfunction. Now, you could argue that it should be a three-arm trial and there should be an arm for medical therapy because medical therapy now is very different to medical therapy when Stitch was published. You know, SGLT2 inhibitors didn't exist. Other drug classes were used in the minority. Defibrillators were used, but, you know, not to the same extent. Resynchronization, not to the same extent. But that's not the design of the trial. The design of the trial is once the decision has been made to revascularize, let's compare the two therapies. And I think that's going to be a very, very informative trial. What it will be interesting is that if that trial comes out, for example, and shows that PCI is not non-inferior to cabbage, if it shows that cabbage is still superior, what is going to happen to all these patients who are either unwilling or unable to undergo surgery. And I haven't seen a huge shift clinically in referral patterns since Revived was published. 
as I say, it may be that more time and more data is enough to sway people, but as I say, these rhythms of treating patients are hard to break out of. And for many years or decades, the rhythm was ischemic assessment, severe disease, referral for bypass surgery, and if that's not an option, referral for PCI. But clinical medicine doesn't always follow perfectly the trial data, and sometimes it takes multiple trials and many, many years for, for practice patterns to change. I agree with you. That's very interesting. And I'm wondering, it's always sometimes hard in clinical medicine because you're talking about a modality of therapy that's being divined, uh, the superiority or the non-inferiority of one over the other. As a clinician, it's always the strategy, right? What is somebody eligible for? What is at-risk myocardium and how does that affect my patient? What is the bottom line, quality of life, how long they're going to live? Are they going to recover the LV function? And many people have looked to imaging things like how much inducible ischemia is there and what is the burden of hypomanating myocardium and how much of that is the totality of the LV that I'm looking at. Do you think, and in your own practice, this has not really been supported by data for the last 20 years, but it comes up again and again that in theory, if the myocardium is viable and you revascularize, you should get, and there's like magic numbers, if you have greater than 15% of inducible ischemia and you have greater than 7%, these numbers are being thrown around, of hibernating myocardium that you could feasibly see a benefit for revascularization, whether you're cabbage or if you're PCI, and, and now that there's more data for cabbage being beneficial than PCI, how do you, in your own practice, divine that? Because I think that's what we do. We reach for things that we can stratify patients into one bucket where they are the most eligible for divining a benefit, right? And that's kind of where we are. I wish I had a good answer for that. Going back to the data briefly, Revive did not mandate assessment for ischemia. So things get even more complicated when you think about it that way. So you can say we have some imaging data from Revive to suggest that if you chose patients on the basis of viability, they didn't benefit, but they weren't assessed for ischemia. We were only assessing for viability or not. And as I said, the fact that very few patients had angina is felt by some to be a surrogate that maybe these patients didn't have ischemia. I think when you're trying to, or when I'm trying to assimilate all of the available information, I think I do exactly as you say. You try and understand as best possible, are things stacked in favor of this patient to benefit? And so I do look at the overall LV function. I do look for areas of extensive scar. And if there's a lot of scar that corresponds to the lesion that is being, you know, that we're being asked to treat, then that does put me off slightly. If there is a large amount of inducible ischemia, or the patient has angina, then I feel more confident. And I think for all of these patients, something that we think about for proceduralists, it's also important for us to communicate to the rest of the team, and particularly the heart failure physicians caring for the patient, is the procedural risk. And we talk a lot about complexity and what is technically difficult to do or not. And in my eyes, that's honestly not as important as the risk to the patient. And if the treating, if the intervention is extraordinarily risky and the benefit is, let's say, speculative, I will sit down with the patient or with the heart failure team and communicate that to them to say, you know, actually the jeopardy of doing this is really relatively high and the benefit is uncertain. Whereas if I think that it's a relatively safe procedure and we can undertake it without risk of a procedural complication without jeopardizing, you know, renal function, that I'm going to get a durable result, then I'm much more likely to sort of give the benefit of the doubt and, and move forward. 
if I think that that risk is not prohibited. So it sounds like basically if I could summarize what we've covered so far is that if I'm in clinic tomorrow and I see a patient who is a new diagnosis of heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, it's still worthwhile to figure out is this due to ischemia and doing either some type of functional testing with associated imaging uh, might be a good first step. And then if that comes back as being concerning, doing coronary angiography, or perhaps if I'm on hospital service and maybe just jump right to coronary angiogram, skip the functional testing. At that point, as long as there's not some type of really concerning proximal lesion that likely is supplying a huge vascular territory, it's unlikely that probably you're going to have significant benefit with maybe doing some potential type of intervention. For what we know, at least at this point, if the patients are young enough and low enough for surgical candidates, maybe surgery would be the, the first preference, but PCI still might have a role in some of these patients. So I feel like that's what we know right now, and that's kind of what we can direct our listenership to do. And everything else is a little bit of a case-by-case basis and try to figure out how to do the best thing you can for the patient in front of you based upon what you know. And we'll just have to wait for the rest of the data to come out over the years to come and hopefully direct us in a little bit better direction. Yusuf, do you have any last comments or things that you want to make sure that the heart failure community out there can take away from this talk and, and know what's important to implement or keep in mind when taking care of patients like this? I think that the workflow or the pattern that you describe is exactly right. And it's important that we all remember, you know, the interventionist, the heart failure team and everybody, that there's, for the vast majority of these patients, there's no rush. Getting more information is valuable. And when you do the angiogram, there's really, you should not feel compelled to intervene there and then unless you're in the context of a myocardial infarction or something like that. There's no rush. We can institute the therapies that we know have prognostic benefit that have been proven in multiple trials, which is the right medical therapy, evaluation for device therapy is appropriate. And then we can see how the patient does and figure out if they need to be vascularized. I do think that for the majority of patients, based on the data we have now, the bypass surgery is the first option. But if it's not possible for patient factors, you know, either preference or prohibitive risk for surgery, Percutaneous treatment is nearly always an option. Complexity of disease shouldn't factor into too much. You know, we are able to treat nearly every type of lesion these days, but procedural risk is very important. And I think that we should all get together to discuss these patients, figure out what the risk-benefit ratio is, and try and choose, you know, judiciously who we offer percutaneous revascularization. Thanks so much again for taking the time to join us. I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope that the information provided is going to help a lot of folks out there take care of our patients with heart failure and coronary disease. And I'm grateful, Yusuf, for you taking the time. Listeners, please stay tuned as we now transition into our final segment of the show, where Priya is going to take us from failure to function. Welcome to From Failure to Function in June 2023. Lots of great trials and studies that were presented at meetings in the month of May. Two really exciting studies that were presented as part of the late-breaking clinical trials during Heart Rhythm 2023 highlighted the success of left bundle branch area pacing, or his bundle pacing, as an alternative to biventricular pacing for patients requiring cardiac resynchronization therapy, or CRT. Hot CRT is a randomized controlled clinical trial that evaluated the efficacy of conduction system pacing guided resynchronization and biventricular pacing in patients with left ventricular ejection fractions that were less than 50% who had a class 1 or class 2 indication for CRT. 
Among the 100 randomized patients, hot CRT was successful in 48 out of 50, or 96%, and biventricular pacing CRT was achieved in 41 out of 50, or 82% of patients in this pilot study. The hot CRT approach was associated with greater improvement in left ventricular ejection fraction compared to biventricular pacing, 12.4% versus 8%, with a p-value of 0.02, at a relatively short follow-up interval of six months. Similar results were presented from the International Left Bundle Branch Area Pacing Collaborative Study Group, who looked at left bundle branch area pacing compared to biventricular pacing for CRT. This study observed 1,778 patients from 15 centers across the world who underwent biventricular pacing, 981 patients, all left bundle branch area pacing, 797 patients, for the first time for CRT with an LVEF in both groups of less than or equal to 35%. The paced QRS duration in milliseconds in left bundle branch area pacing was significantly narrower than baseline, also significantly narrower when compared to biventricular pacing results. Left ventricular ejection fraction improved during follow-up in both groups, but was greater in left bundle branch area pacing compared to biventricular pacing. 41% plus or minus 13% versus 37% plus or minus 12% with a p-value less than 0.01. This study supported left bundle branch area pacing as a promising alternative that may result in superior resynchronization compared to that derived from traditional biventricular pacing in patients requiring CRT. Moving to the ESC Heart Failure 2023 conference, Lots of great trials presented at that conference, one of which was the results from the Paraglide HF trial that assessed secubitral valsartan versus valsartan in patients with an ejection fraction greater than 40% following a recent worsening heart failure event. The primary endpoint was time average proportional change in NT-proBNP from baseline through weeks four and eight. There was a second hierarchical outcome which consisted of cardiovascular death, heart failure hospitalizations, urgent heart failure visits, and change in NT-proBNP. The trial found that in 233 patients treated with secubitral valsartan versus 233 patients treated with valsartan alone, the time average reduction in the NT-proBNP was greater with secubitral valsartan with a ratio of change of 0.85, the hierarchical outcome favored secubital valsartan, but it was not significant, with an unmatched win ratio of 1.19. Secubital valsartan reduced worsening renal function, but increased symptomatic hypotension. Another effect that has been observed in previous trials of secubital valsartan included a larger treatment effect that was noted in the subgroup with an EF less than or equal to 60% for NT-proBNP change. In conclusion, among patients with an EF greater than 40% who were stabilized after a worsening heart failure event, secubital valsartan did lead to a greater reduction in plasma NT-proBNP levels and was associated with clinical benefit compared with valsartan alone, despite more symptomatic hypertension. On behalf of Michael and myself, we want to thank you for tuning into the Heart Failure Beat. We'll catch you next time with more exciting news and discussions from the world of heart failure. The opinions expressed by the hosts and guests of this podcast are their own and not necessarily those of the Heart Failure Society of America. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit hfsa.org hfbeat. Follow HFSA on Twitter and look for us at hashtag hfbeat.